Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Consider yourself to be a good listener. Well, maybe it depends on whether you are an introvert or an extrovert. What is it about those particular personality traits that help you pay attention in a conversation? How do we even classify good listeners? I think these are all excellent questions. I'm going to listen now, though, as Hannah Collins tells us that. Hannah is a doctoral student of organizational behavior at Harvard Business School. Hannah, thank you for being with us this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm ready to listen intently to your answers. <laughs> Great. So, so tell me, how do, first of all, how do you define an extrovert here? Yeah, absolutely. So we're building from kind of years of research on this topic. Um, and generally, I would, just say, I would say we define this trait as people who are outgoing and sociable and talkative and really invested in kind of their social relationships and social interactions. Okay. And do they not make good listeners? Well, so in this research, we find that people perceive others who are high in extroversion to be worse listeners, but we do not have evidence as to whether this is true. We simply know it's a lay belief. So when people are interacting and conversing with people who are showing these kind of very extroverted traits, they're outgoing, they're talkative, they're thinking in their mind, they're not listening to me, they're not listening to me. But we actually don't know if it's true because we can't actually um, well, we, I'm sure some people can, but we can't actually measure kind of the cognitive engagement going on in their head um, in that in those moments. So I'm fascinated about how you did this. Like, how did you, did you ask people then, do you think people are listening to you? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple, we took a couple approaches here to try and kind of narrow in on this finding. Um, one was we actually asked uh, students who had kind of worked together in these working groups for about a year in their program. And we asked people to simply um, complete a measure of extroversion for themselves. So we asked people, how extroverted are you in all these dimensions? And then we asked everyone in their working group who worked with them for the whole year, do you think this person was a good listener? So we actually are finding in that study that people's own ratings of extroversion are negatively correlated with their kind of working partners, their colleagues' um, ratings of their listening. And another thing we did here was we actually ran some kind of experiments. So we um, showed profiles of high or low extroversion people to participants. And we asked them, look, this is the, all the information you have about this person. They're either very extroverted, not very extroverted. And we kind of manipulated that in many different ways, using different words and different um, kind of images as well. And we asked them, how good of a listener do you think this person would be if you talk to them? And again, we're finding that when people think the person is very extroverted, they think they're not, sorry, they're not going to be a very good listener. Okay, this is fascinating to me, because this really says a lot about assumptions, doesn't it? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's the critical piece here is that we actually don't know. Um, but people are going into these conversations. And when they're receiving cues of extroversion, they're thinking, oh, you're not listening to me. And I think that's a really interesting um, kind of label here, because we know that these assumptions about people kind of affect whether we interact with them and how we interact with them. 
And we also know that kind of feeling heard and feeling listened to is a critical aspect of our social lives. So if this belief is, in fact, incorrect, which it may be, again, we don't know, then I think it really is a, a, a negative assumption that people are making about extroverts, for sure. Right, because they are taking that assumption based on the social cues that they see. But if they were to ask that person, did you just hear anything I said, they may get a very different answer. Exactly, exactly. We're not really sure what would happen, but people definitely have a very strong belief that they're not listening. Okay, and now you were using kind of business students for this, right? Because this would seem like a critical issue for people who are in business school, (laughs) that you probably need to be perceived as good listeners. Yes, absolutely. We know it's critical across domains to be perceived as a good listener. We've, you know, there's research in business and about uh, supervisors and employers, and there's also research in healthcare. So, you know, doctors who are perceived to be good listeners, um, their patients are more satisfied in romantic relationships, in between strangers. Like we know perceived listening is very important across domains. Um, And in these studies, we look at uh, business school students, and we also kind of look at um, online populations that kind of uh, survey people that are pretty representative of the U.S. population as well. Would you say then, Hannah, that there is a value for people to be perceived as a good listener? I would say that. I think that there people really want to be heard. We know that it feels really good. I think we've all had those experiences in our lives. And I do think across domains, people really want to talk to someone that, that is going to listen to them. And I think that I think people do have this value. And I think it comes up you know, in popular press articles, it comes up over and over again. And in even in classes that you take, people, you know, are teaching you, I think, especially in business schools these days, how to be a good listener. And I think it, it is something that people carry around with them, that they really value good listening. Wait, are you telling me there's classes that they teach in business school about how to be a good listener? I wouldn't say specifically that, <laughs> but it comes up across classes, I would say, in my experiences, that this is a very important trait and that employees really want to be heard and that it's kind of on you as a manager um, to kind of provide that for them. Yeah. See, I would agree. I would agree. And I would suggest perhaps that we haven't taught this enough. But Hannah, thank you so much for your time Absolutely. this morning. Of course, it was so fun. Thank you. It was fun. That's Hannah Collins, a doctoral student of organizational behavior at Harvard Business School, talking about a study she worked on that looked at the value of being perceived as a good listener. I would also love to see a study that kind of surveyed managers and supervisors and bosses to see what is the perception that this person is a good listener. Does that help you kind of climb the corporate ladder? Find a way in, send me at cknw.com. We know that the BC Urban Mayors Caucus, who represent cities right across this province, have asked the provincial government to do something about prolific offenders because they are seeing the impact in their communities, in their downtown cores in all these different cities. Well, Surrey is no different. They are also seeing the impacts and the reach of prolific offenders. So what do the businesses in Surrey think of this prolific offender plan that was announced by David Eby and Mike Farnworth yesterday? To talk more about that, Anita Hopperman joins us now, the president and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks for being here, Anita. Good morning, Simi. I know a lot of people, there was a lot of anticipation about that announcement yesterday in the hopes that something big would happen. What was your impression? Disappointing. We needed solutions and results, not another research report. And we've been calling on uh, the different level, the the BC government, the federal government on solutions for prolific offenders, actually since 2008. 
And uh, there are pilot projects uh, that were implemented in 08 in Surrey in, in combination with public safety. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the announcement by the B.C. government on yet another report as the situations continue to escalate, impacting businesses, impacting customer safety, from our perspective, unacceptable. What kind of impact have you seen on this for businesses in Surrey? What are you hearing? Well, it's not as intense as what's happening in uh, Vancouver, but uh, we are facing, uh, you know, street-level crime uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the same types of offenders, uh, you know, breaking and entering in in businesses. Uh, But that's one piece of it. Prolific offenders are also related to the context of gang violence. Uh, you know, the same actors engaging in the same crime, uh, impacting uh, victims, uh, impacting innocent people, impacting uh, the brand uh, of our city. So what do you think should have been done? What would you like to have seen? Well, number one, uh, there needed to be an announcement to say the B.C. government is going to work with the B.C. courts, with the federal courts, uh, to ensure that these repeat offenders are off of the streets. There needs to be a strategy related to that. Number two, um, and this has been shown in in 08 and 09 when Surrey did this with the Surrey RCMP, where there was a pilot project focused uh, on a small group of prolific offenders. Uh, There was intensive supervision, access to supports. And then a year later, uh, we found or they found that uh, their intent to reoffend was reduced by 40%. Uh, The province needed to make make a commitment yesterday to continue best practices that have already been learned, not only locally, but, um, you know, uh, nationally as well. So would you like to see something like that pilot project started again? Yes. I don't even know why it stopped uh, in the first place. Uh, You know, we need an integrated offender management program that builds on the success of these different pilot projects that have happened, not only in Surrey, but in other parts, Uh, bring together uh, criminal justice agencies and make sure that um, those that reoffend are kept off of the streets. Uh, that they have access to support services so that they can become productive members of our economy because in the end, every single person matters uh, in this workforce and in this economy. Now, I've heard the ministers talk about, you know, complex care facilities and they are slowly kind of getting those off the ground. What kind of a difference do you think that could make in parts of Surrey? Well, significant, and and not only in Surrey, uh, but within the region, crime is borderless. Uh, so uh, we have been so behind in terms of creating those wraparound, holistic uh, mental health support services, for example, um, uh, social services uh, to uh, to really support, uh, you know, these offenders, these repeat offenders, so that they're not repeating this crime, uh, that they have access to whatever issue they may be facing. And, uh, you know, this is a very complex uh, conversation, a very complex um, situation for for many individuals. Every case is different and needs to be dealt with differently. 
Are there particular areas of Surrey that you think are really being impacted by the situation? Well, uh, certainly uh, the downtown core of, uh, of our city. Um, there's other pockets, uh, such as the Cloverdale area of our city, uh, the southern part of our city, um, and, 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 you know, even the, the Newton part of our, our city. It's, it's really, you know, spread wide because you can fit the cities of Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby into our geography limits. So um, it's not concentrated as it is uh, in, in downtown Vancouver. All right, so what would your message here be to the provincial government? They're talking about a couple of months while they wait for the results of this uh, report to come back. Well, my message to them is you already have a report that was done. It was the Blue Ribbon Report. Yes, it's under the former Liberal government, um, but they had six recommendations from our perspective and and through our social policy team uh, made sense to ensure these pilot projects happened. We need action, BC government. We don't need another report, is our message. Well, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. That's Anita Haberman, President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. They want to send a message to the provincial government saying, obviously, they need action, as she said. So what is this plan that was announced yesterday by the Attorney General David Eby and the Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth? Well, what they're doing is they are hiring an investigation panel uh, that is composed of a former like a police officer and a researcher, and they are going to then reach out to key stakeholders. They are going to explore specific proposals uh, that have already been received by the government to see if these are feasible, to see if they can be implemented, see if they might be effective in mitigating chronic property crime and violent offenses. And then this panel is going to compile their findings in a written report returned to the ministers within 120 days. So four months. Four months to study an issue that we all see happening, I think, you know, every day in these communities across the province. And so, yeah, that was the creative solution or what had been billed as the creative solution to deal with this problem. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. And listen, there are some good suggestions in there. I mean, we spoke to Mike Morris, the BC Liberal MLA yesterday, and his idea of a special prosecutor dedicated to a chronic offender I think that's a great idea. Anita Huberman just mentioned a pilot project that they had in Surrey, what, 12, 13 years ago, involving, you know, a team of people who dealt with chronic offenders, with their care issues, with, you know, any substance use issues to kind of really target them to help you know, get down that that um, the urge to reoffend, and she said that was successful. She doesn't know why that ended. So there are already creative solutions out there. It's like we've done this before. We know how to do this. Why is it going to take four months to get an official report that would suggest probably some of these similar things? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This week, undoubtedly, you noticed something on your cell phone. You probably got one of those alert-ready messages. It was a test of the system and an important one because in BC, we are expanding our use of that emergency alert system to include wildfires and floods. Incredibly important considering, you know, with the spring melt that's about to happen, flooding will be a concern and we're heading into wildfire season. But there is one area that is not being included in this, and that is another heat dome. When we had that incredible heat dome, those temperatures late last June, uh, it was deadly for so many people. And there was criticism that we didn't adequately push out warnings to people. 
So how do we make sure everybody hears about situations like that? Joining us is Barbara Roden, the mayor of the village of Ashcroft. Barbara, thank you for being with us this morning. No, thank you for having me, Simi. What kind of an impact did that heat dome last year have on your community? It was something that, that no one had ever seen here before. And, and I need to, to tell people who aren't familiar with Ashcroft that we do get very hot here. We are Canada's only true desert. So temperatures of 37, 38, 39 in, in the height of summer in July and August are not at all uncommon. No one had ever seen uh, 48 degrees, which is what we got up to. And certainly not that early in the season in June. But because people here are accustomed to the heat, it's why a lot of people come here. People do have air conditioning in their homes. A lot of the older homes here have swamp coolers, which are quite effective. And and people know to be sensible in the heat. You don't go jogging at 11 in the morning. You don't walk the dog right. at 1 in the afternoon. So people are smart about it. They're, they're, they're pretty well educated about it up, up here. And, and sadly, we saw that that was not the case in a lot of parts of the province. Okay, so even when that heat dome hit, you're saying here's a community that is generally quite well adjusted to high temperatures. It must have, there must have been some struggle to even deal with these high temperatures. There was. We have our own emergency alert system that we subscribe to here. We did use that to inform citizens. We put together a cooling center. We were putting out information to people about what's the difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke and what do you do if you identify that in yourself or someone else. So we were still taking those steps because in situations like this, we found there is no such thing as too much communication. So when you heard about the expansion of the alert ready system this week, Mayor Roden, like, what did you think? I thought, well, my, my first thought was it's about time. Um, I'm, I'm, I was glad that the province was seeing the need for this. And certainly prior to Tuesday's announcement, I thought, all right, well, we're, we're going to see that they're, they'll be using the system for emergencies and, and fires and floods, obviously. And I thought, given the, the number of deaths attributed to the heat dome last year, that that would be included on the list of things that they would send out a warning about. And I was, I was quite surprised, to, to be honest, to find that it wasn't on the list. And you think it should be like, we're talking province-wide here. Clearly, people need some more information. Yes, because this was not an isolated thing with the heat dome. Uh, I mean, it was everywhere from, from you know, Vancouver Island and, and the coast of the Fraser Valley, the lower mainland, right up to, to Prince George and Points North, places that were 10, 12, 14 degrees above normal. So, you know, if Prince George gets up to 35, 38 degrees, that's fairly normal here in Ashcroft. That is by no means normal in Prince George. So something that is so big, covers so much of the province, uh, definitely, I think, warrants an alert from the province. So would you say then in another situation like that, like it it was really just left up to small communities, like you were saying, your community has to do this. It would, would it be more helpful to have the province provide that information? It, it, it would be a good compliment. As I said, there's no such thing in these situations as too much communication. And, and I have heard people say, well, Floods and fires are, are disasters. They happen very suddenly, sometimes without a lot of warning. The heat dome, everyone saw it coming. There were lots of, of notices in, in the news and from Environment Canada. And I, I think when it comes to weather, people are a little bit boy who cried wolf sometimes because we've all seen examples where Environment Canada has predicted, for example, a massive storm 
lots of snow and then it fails to materialize. So I think for a lot of people, this these warnings about a heat dome were sort of, oh, well, it's, it's not going right. to be that bad. Right. And I know and, the minister has also said that he's been concerned about alert fatigue, that if you use it too often, people will stop paying attention to it. And that is definitely an issue. It's something that we, we, we don't struggle with it here in Ashcroft, but we are very conscious of the fact that we do not want alerts to become white noise so that people just go, oh, it's another alert, just ignore it. Uh, so, so you have to, to be very judicious in how you use these alerts. But if you do it properly, that is another tool in the toolbox to alert people that something is coming that you need to prepare for. So what is the criteria by which you do that for your community? We look, uh, well, for something like a heat dome, for example, we've we've established, I think it's 37 degrees, and it's a certain number of days. I think it's three days or more in a row where the temperature is predicted to be above a certain threshold. Then we would put out a heat alert to people and we would mobilize our cooling center so that that was ready and we get the information out. Here's where the cooling center is. Here are the hours. Um, just making people aware that these are the steps that we've taken to be prepared. Uh, and this is, what, this is what you need to do. You need to take whatever steps that looks like for you to make sure that you're ready. Would you say that that gets used, does it get used every year in Ashcroft at some point? We've only, uh, last year was our first season, quote unquote, of having the, the alert system in place. And we, we gave it, a, well, it ended up having a test in May when we had a small grass fire nearby. And we saw the numbers number of subscribers double literally in 24 hours as word got round. Oh, wow, I got the alert. Oh, I didn't get the alert. So then there was more um, consciousness of it. And then over the course of the summer with the heat dome and then with the wildfires, we saw our our number of subscribers go up to around 900, which is not too bad in a town of 1,700. Yeah, that is really good. So would you say people were seeing the value in it then? Very much so. As I said, after the first fire, uh, we we put out the alert uh, to to the neighbourhood that was specifically affected. Uh, The people up there who had the alert were talking about it. Their neighbors were saying, oh, I didn't get an alert. And then that prompted them to right. sign up for it. It's, it's free to sign up for. And, and we made it very easy. We said to people, if you need help, come down to the village office or give us a call. We will help you set it up. We will help you download the app. And, and just by making it that easy for people, uh, people took advantage of it. Is it different, do you think, because yours is one where people have to sign up for it versus this provincial alert ready system, which is, it happens automatically to everybody. I think the nice thing about the province-wide one is that because it, it people people will get it whether they have get it on their phones, whether or devices, whether they're listening to the radio or watching television. Um, so it has far more reach, obviously, not just in terms of going to the entire province, but that you don't have to sign up for it. So I, in that sense, I think it is a very valuable tool because people can't ignore it. That is so true. Um, Thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Thank you, Simi. That is Barbara Rudd, Mayor of the Village of Ashcroft, saying that, you know what, this alert-ready system that is province-wide that is being expanded, we heard that this week, should apply to things like a heat dome too, because right now that's not included in the criteria of when that alert-ready system kind of kicks into place. It's being used for wildfires, it's being used for flooding, it's for using for sudden kind of catastrophic situations, but not for something like a heat dome. Should that have been, or should it be, added to the list? Or are you one of those people who have alert fatigue on your phone, right? You want to make sure people pay attention to it too. That's that's the critical aspect of that. Well, Simi at cknw.com. So what's going on with BC's jobs picture? Now, StatsCan released employment numbers for the month of April this morning. And for BC, it wasn't great news. We had an eight-month streak of gains that came to a halt The provincial economy actually lost some jobs. The unemployment rate went from 5.1% to 5.4% month over month. So where is that happening? What is going on? Well, to help us get a better picture of that, this morning we're joined by Ravi Kailan, who's the Minister of Employment, Jobs, Economic Recovery. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So what happened with these jobs? Where did we lose employment? Well, we saw, as you've highlighted, eight months of uh, steady job growth. We, we still lead the country in, in job growth and economic recovery. But we did see a slight dip this month in about 2,000 uh, jobs. We saw some job losses in uh, transportation, warehousing, uh, some in the, in, the, in the healthcare system. And that's not just the public healthcare system. That's health services. So it's much broader than that. Um, but we still... Uh, are uh, 98,000 more people uh, that are employed in British Columbia than before the pandemic. And uh, uh, so we're in a good place and still pretty comfortable where we are right now. Right. But so we lost some jobs in areas like transportation as well and, and warehousing. So what is going on there? Uh, you, you know, if you look at uh, the job numbers historically, you always see ups and downs once they get to a steady place. And that's where we are. Uh, some of the other provinces are making job gains now, but they've been behind the job gains over the long uh, over the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. So what we're actually seeing is we're starting to get really flat in our employment numbers. Uh, and you know, this is from last month. We also know that uh, this month we're starting to see cruise ships come back, both in Victoria and Vancouver, and that will again have impacts on employment numbers. But we have had seen. A historic amount of people come to British Columbia. And, and the fact that the unemployment rate is at 5.4%, it means more people are now entering the labor market looking for work, which is positive because employers are telling us they can't find enough people. Okay, but are we matching them all together, though? The people who are looking for work versus the type of jobs that are available? Uh, that always takes a little bit of time. Uh, people enter the labor market, they're looking for work. They're looking for the right fit. And so we know that the demand right now for workers is not only in hospitality and tourism. Uh, We are hearing from manufacturers. We're hearing from tech companies. uh, You name it, we are hearing it. Construction sector. uh, Right now, we were meeting with companies who say, I could hire 10, 20, 30 people. And so we have made, the federal government's made some changes to immigration rules to help ease some of that pressure. But this is going to be a challenge that we have for the years ahead, actually. Okay, so was this just a situation for that particular month, do you think? Or what, what do you see happening in the months ahead? Is BC going to get back on track? Uh, I think it's good. we're going to see uh, slight increases, slight decreases uh, going forward. Now that we've hit the, the, the capacity where we're at, 
Of course, if we have continued to attract more people to British Columbia, we can see the employment numbers continue to rise. But again, the challenge we have is we have more jobs than the people to take them. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, most of the projections that we have from the from the, the studies that the province has done is it's going to be a challenge that is going with us for the years ahead, given that we're expecting more people to, to start to retire in the years ahead. Right. And did you see the shift in jobs? You mentioned kind of the cruise ship industry, tourism getting ramped back up, I think, in the month of April. Did we see a shift in people returning to those jobs? Well, the numbers that we're talking about now are actually a month old. And so what we'll see is the increase uh, in employment from cruise industry coming back will probably be reflected in next month's numbers. Uh, and we are starting to see that. Uh, talking to businesses in Vancouver, I mean, and Victoria, we had three cruise ships in Vancouver the other day. It was busy. Everything was busy. Uh, and same in Victoria. And so we're starting to see that. We saw the uh, the numbers come from airline industry. They're showing record numbers of people flying to British Columbia from other parts of the country. So we're feeling pretty good about tourism coming back. And, and we know that was a sector that was particularly challenged uh, throughout the pandemic. And I know we had some issues too on the supply chain side of things, including jobs that impacted that sector. Uh, is that area hiring or is it stagnant? What's happening there? Uh, they're they're hiring, but the challenge we have in our uh, in our system transportation, whether it's our supply chains, is we've got multiple challenges. We're still dealing with the challenges coming out of the pandemic. It hasn't resolved itself. We have now a war in Ukraine, which is adding additional hurdles and challenges. Uh, and so it's something that uh, I know many many companies are uh, navigating. We're doing some work with uh, the ports to help streamline uh, the uh, goods movement right now that is coming through. Uh, it's going to take some time for that to settle. Uh, and it's something that we're watching very, very closely. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. Stay safe. You too. That's Ravi Kalan, who's the Minister of Employment and Jobs and Economic Recovery. Talking about this month's jobs numbers that just came out this morning from Statistics Canada, we had an eight-month streak going of gains in employment. Well, that did come to a stop for BC. We lost some jobs, not a lot, but we lost about 2,000 jobs in that month of April, and it was enough to see our unemployment rate go from 5.1% in the month of March to about 5.4% in April. So you wonder, like, how is that possible with everything that's going on in BC? It seems like lots of places are hiring. Looks like it was like a shift in jobs. There were some jobs lost in healthcare, but more like on the private side of healthcare things, not as much on public healthcare, transportation, warehousing, those kinds of issues. Next month, as we heard, we expect to see some changes in terms of hiring in the tourism industry. As for the national job picture, well, it looks like job creation did slow down overall in the month of April, but the unemployment rate went to 5.2% across Canada. So just down a smidge from the 5.3% in March. And that remains, by the way, the lowest unemployment rate we have seen in this country in nearly 50 years. So things are definitely ramping up, but there are some adjustments. Sounds like a bit of a bumpy road for the next few months on that.